0: Quick reminder, June 27th at 1.45, I will be presenting a talk at the Intelligent Speech Conference 2020, which is all online this year. Tickets are online at their website, and you can listen to me and dozens of other top podcasters talking about hidden history. My talk is how you can find hidden history, how you can develop original ideas and discover things that no one else has discovered before. Whether you're a podcaster looking for a new interesting episode, a history major looking for a thesis, dissertation, or article topic, or whether you're just a history buff that really wants to find something unique and original, be sure to check it out. Today's special episode is an interview with noted author Ian McGregor. As an editor and publisher of nonfiction, Ian has over 25 years' experience working with authors such as Bruce Springsteen, Shimon Shama, David Gran, Bob Woodward, and Max Hastings, to name but a few. He is currently a publisher for the Hachette Publishing, one of France's biggest media groups. A cycling fanatic, Ian is also the author of To Hell on a Bike, Riding Paris-Roubaix, The Toughest Race in Cycling. Today, we're talking about his newest book, Checkpoint Charlie, The Cold War, The Berlin Wall, and The Most Dangerous Place on Earth. Ian's exhaustive work examines the daily life in Berlin from interviews with Berliners, Allied soldiers and officers, and members of the press. Since we are a French history podcast, we are focusing on the French sector and how France administered the capital of its European rival, all while it was caught between two contentious superpowers. Additionally, we look at daily life in French-controlled Berlin, which was anything but ordinary, as some areas, notably Bernard Strasse, were the most dangerous on Earth. Please enjoy. Thank you very much for sitting down with me, Ian, to discuss your new book, Checkpoint Charlie, The Cold War, The Berlin Wall, and The Most Dangerous Place on Earth. But before we actually jump into that, I couldn't help but notice your previous book was about France, the book To Hell on a Bike. Riding Paris-Roubaix, The Toughest Race in Cycling, details a French race that is among the hardest bike races on earth that even some people from the Tour de France will avoid.
1: Care to tell us a little bit about the book? Yeah, sure. Thank you. And thank you for having me on the uh, the podcast. I really appreciate it. Yes, well, I'm I'm actually, uh, if I'm not taking up my passion for history, my, my other passion, which I've had since I was a teenager riding for a cycling club, is obviously cycling. I've done lots of different routes and touring holidays. Uh, I've done uh, uh, a Tour de France at TAP, which was uh, hell on earth, as it were, but nothing's as bad as uh, Paris-Roubaix. If you're you're a a cyclist that loves European cycling, you love Paris-Roubaix. There's no kind of uh, ifs or buts. It is the oldest one-day cycling race that there still is on the calendar. And obviously it's... Northern France, going into Belgium and the Flemish-speaking areas is really hardcore cycling at its best, in my opinion. So I've always, since I was a student, I've been fascinated, obsessed with Paris-Roubaix, always watched it every year. And I mean, for the the pros, I mean, it's just an incredible race. I mean, they obviously ride at a far greater speed uh, than us amateurs. But it's roughly around for the for the uh, the pros It's about two hundred thirty, two hundred forty kilometers, of which fifty eight of those kilometers are on cobbles, and uh, that's what you have nowadays. The, the, there was more cobbles back in the day, especially before the first and second world wars. But with the, the with the the use of uh, modern farming and things like that, lots of sections of the pave, as it's called, have been lost. So I just wanted to. Uh, rediscover it and do it in a kind of travelogue way and be able to uh, realize a childhood dream and cycle it so the story I've told is it's half the book is the history of the race uh, talking about the famous events and uh, the famous riders and the famous personalities around it how it's invented that kind of thing the interruptions of the first and the second world war and then The other half of the book is me training just as you or I as a normal civilian, so to speak, and how you go about doing this, the, the level of training you need to do to not just survive it, but I'm one of those guys that I don't want to do it just to survive. I want to actually enjoy the experience. And if you do that, you've got to be relatively fit and go across it at speed. Uh, and that's what I did. And it was it was hugely enjoyable. And I got to meet some incredible people, got to meet some of my heroes, uh, bike riders from yesteryear. And uh, it, and I was, you know, genuinely very happy, happily surprised that it, it sold really well in the UK and in France. So uh, that helped me with my my uh, passion for writing as well. I thought, well, if I can, if this works and I know I can do it. And that's why it's led on to then the book we're about to talk about.
0: So what was harder, doing the historical research or doing the bike ride itself?
1: Uh I'd say the research only because I was lucky. Paru Bay is always held around Easter time and obviously you've got the vagaries of weather and the 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 many, many races down the years, the professional races where they've had a lot of rain the either the night or the day before the race and raining during the race you literally don't recognise these guys once they finish because it's a mud bath. And obviously, because you're cycling so close to the guy in front of you, you're, and these guys don't race with mud guards, you're drenched. So all you have is this guy at the end of the race who's won it, literally covered head to foot in mud, and the only white you see is his teeth smiling and his eyes blinking. But obviously, if it's a dry race then it's it's dust clouds it's famous for it. its huge dust clouds. so again the guy who wins it and the guys that finish the race they're covered in dust but they're you know they're they're, they're much more recognizable so I was lucky that the day I did it it was quite a dry day it rained in the morning just for a, an hour or so made it a bit slicker but as the day wore on it was a, it was a lovely day actually and I, I and I, I've done the training so I I really enjoyed it I mean the the cobbles they're proper they're not those kind of smooth cobbles you might see in a nice tourist area of an old town in edinburgh or bath where i you know where i've been they're proper napoleonic cobbles they're they're big big things that were more used to uh making sure a horse and cart a heavily laden horse and cart could could drive over them and they're all at different angles you get some some pieces that are vicious that just stand right out like an iceberg and you've got to avoid them And I love that kind of thing. It's fantastic. It's it's the wacky races. It's absolutely wacky races.
0: All right. So now let's move from France to the French sector of West Berlin. So tell me what inspired you to write your second book on West Berlin during its division and what new takes or information do you want to add to what's already been written?
1: Well, my uh, I'm, in my day job I'm a publisher of nonfiction, and I have been for the last twenty five years. Uh, and I've published a lot of either military or political books, from big books on Donald Trump by Bob Woodward to World War One, World War Two, Napoleonic, all that kind of thing. The very first book I ever published was on the uh, the Imperial Guard uh, under Napoleon. My my love of of this era and of Berlin itself mainly comes from my father. And my uh, my uncles, who were all served in the either the British Army or the RAF during the Cold War after the Second World War, obviously. And my dad was in the uh, in the British Army, and he served in the the British Army of the Rhine. And so his R and R, where he's having weekends furlough, he'd he'd been to West Berlin a few times, and then obviously he'd been there on holidays. Well, once he'd come out of the army, so I grew up with this knowledge and passion from him of what an amazing city it was and where he talks about the division of Germany as well. And then obviously I had uncles as well that served. So my, my dad was in the army in the fifties, but my uncle served in the sixties and the seventies. So, and the seventies was my childhood. So I grew up with all this. And then I was lucky enough to go on student exchanges to East Germany and to the Soviet union in the early eighties. And that, that again, just lit a fire on my passion for history. So I did a degree in modern European history. My dissertation was on the Prague Spring of 68. Uh, and that's led, having fallen into publishing, led to me obviously wanting to work in the uh, the history area. I'd, I've published a couple of books on Berlin. I've, I've published several books on Germany. Uh, I've published many books on the Cold War. But on on my storyboard at home was if i'm going to write a book i really really want to uh write a book on on berlin during the cold war and the berlin war uh i again i i finished my degree in 1990 but in 1989 i was at my in my house with my housemates at, at university and as you would know this is before we had the internet or uh 24-hour rolling news that kind of thing all you saw was what was on the news bulletins on on one tv so i was sitting there with my housemates watching the checkpoints open and to me it must have been the same for you the the berlin wall and the warsaw pact and the iron curtain because we were we, we were born and raised in that era it was as physical to us as the himalayas and so to see that open and potentially the Warsaw Pact fall and even the USSR was just an incredible moment. And so the following summer, I think I'd said this to you on an email, I, I, I made sure I I got an interrail pass and I travelled through the eastern countries that I was allowed to travel through at the time just to make sure that I would see it before I knew it would all go. So I did that. So the book itself, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm getting back to my job as a publisher I'm very much into oral history. I think that's the most important aspect of, oral, of history is, is people that have lived that, that important sections that you want to study or publish. So I spent two years uh, researching and contacting and then travelling to and interviewing over 70, nearly 80 people uh, from all walks of life, military, civilian, uh, the media, political, from east and west, uh, East Germany, the Soviet Union, and then obviously the Allies to make sure that I had a complete take as best as I could of what it was like to live, work, and if potentially escape through or try to escape through the Berlin Wall. And because I'd, I'd never read a book like that before, I mean, obviously, I'd, I'd read many books on Berlin and the division the of the city, and then life in the city as the, the, the 28 year lifespan of the war. And Anna Funder's book, Stasiland, really inspired me. And I loved the way she'd gone about doing that book. And she captured the thoughts of various Berliners straight after the wall had opened because she lived there in, in West Berlin. And, and then she went into the East. And I wanted to do the same, but obviously on want to paint a bigger picture. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I was very, very lucky to find some key people, one of which, for instance, very quickly was, from the American side, he was he was German-American, a guy called Adolf Nachstedt, who I've given a, a whole chapter to in the book. And his life is incredible. He he was born in the Bronx to a German parents who'd moved to America from Germany in the Depression 1920s, uh, but then returned to Germany because they were Volksdeutsche and believed in the new fatherland Hitler was building. The family survived, obviously, the Second World War. To cut a long story short, they survived the war, uh, survived the Berlin airlift uh, in 48. Adolf's father was one of the guys that was at Tempelhof unloading the Allied planes that were landing. But Adolf was getting into trouble with his with his brother stealing coal from the Russians in the Russian sector. And so it got to the point where he thought, I'll make use of my American passport because I was born in the Bronx and I'll move back to the States. He enlisted uh, when he was 18 and was immediately drafted into military intelligence because obviously they they realised what his background was. And then from 1953 onwards, all the way through to the building of the Berlin Wall and afterwards, he was a spook in West and East Berlin. And no one had spoken to him before, no one had captured his memories, and he he literally was involved or a witness to all the major incidents in Berlin from 56 onwards. And he witnessed some incredible things and did some incredible things. So to get his uh, take was amazing. From a French perspective, I had Marguerite Hosseini, who, again, was incredible. Her father was a French diplomat, worked in the French sector. And she grew up From the early 50s all the way through to when she left West Berlin in the mid to late 60s, she saw, uh, obviously, the wall go up. But before that, she travelled throughout the Soviet sector with her father and saw what kind of states East Berlin was in and how different it was from the the French sector that she grew up in. And then, obviously, she witnessed the wall going up. She witnessed people getting killed trying to cross the wall. She witnessed JFK arriving. Uh, to give his famous speech. He could be an And then she obviously left the city to try and carve a new life for herself out into, in Western Europe. And then again, again, from a French perspective, very lucky and hugely privileged to interview Major General Francois Kahn, who was the, uh, who we will talk about later, who was the French commandant of the French sector in 1989. And obviously was caught up in events then. And to have his take on how he dealt with the situation with the other Allied commanders was, was fascinating.
0: It certainly sounds like it. And I think you at least went partially to answering my next question, which is, I imagine this book must have been hard to write since you had to work with English, French, Russian, and German sources. How many languages do you speak, and how did you overcome this obstacle?
1: Well, obviously, I speak English, so that's very easy. Uh, I speak some German. I can read German better than I can uh, speak it. And with anything French, I I don't speak. But I was very lucky uh, with my French and Russian uh, interviewees that uh, one of the researchers I worked with, uh, who's uh, French-German born, uh, she's called Sabine Shirek, and she's from Berlin, but she works in London as well. And we've known each other for a few years. She was uh, vital for me to talk to the French interviewees that I met because obviously it's it's uh you want to do them the honor and the uh just the politeness to obviously speak and capture their their memories and their anecdotes and their own language and it makes them feel comfortable as well, and they'll be more relaxed to actually talk to you properly than obviously me obviously trying to discover what they're saying and 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 stumble around but German was easier, but again, the trouble with that is, from a uh, an East German perspective, a lot of the border guards that I interviewed were from Saxony uh, in the southern uh, southeastern part of the country, and their dialect is is quite nasal, quite difficult, especially if they're speaking quickly to understand. So again, Sabine would s- sit in with me on the the various interviews I had with these people, and just to make sure that obviously there was no error in what they were saying to me or what I was saying to them, that we both understood each other. And every single, doesn't matter if they were Russian, German, French, or or English-speaking, American or British, every single person I spoke to uh, had their transcription emailed to them so that they could pick over it and make sure that they were happy with what they'd said. Any redactions I, of course, took and made Any extra things they wanted to add were made. So Francois Kahn wanted to add a few things, take a couple of things out. Uh, And the the nice thing as well, getting back to Sabine, who was my researcher and interpreter, uh, her uncle had actually been a gendarme working in Berlin in the 1970s. So again, she had a real love and passion for the subject. And she had some really good and knowledgeable angles to discuss with the gendarmes that I did meet, about the role they played that I wouldn't have thought of because obviously I haven't got any relatives that, 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 that uh, were in the gendarmerie working in Berlin.
0: One of the first major events you detail is the East German immigration crisis. Russia was understandably trying to ruin Germany both as a means of defending itself and as punishment for the German actions in World War II and purposely crashed the Reichsmark. This and the imposition of totalitarian rule meant that by 1961, 2.1 million East Germans or one-sixth of the entire population went west. My questions are, how did the Allies deal with this massive influx of people? Was this a positive, a negative, or both?
1: The the personnel, the Allied personnel, uh, military and political and civilian that I interviewed, that dealt with this massive migration over the, the years. So obviously from sort of fifty-four, definitely fifty-four onwards, because obviously nineteen fifty-three, you've got the uh the East German uprising of the workers. The East German workers were so fed up of uh, the 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 constant uh quotas that they had to meet in heavy industry without their, their hours of work increasing. Their output was increasing, but their wages were were being lowered and there wasn't much to buy anyway. And so obviously by 1953, the powder keg burst and you had the, the East German uprising, which mushroomed from one small scale event in Berlin to the whole country was up in flames almost, figur- figuratively speaking, and it was only Russian tanks that put it down. So that was kind of, even though you had quite close tight border control by then that really exploded the uh, the need for east germans to leave the country because they didn't see a future for themselves and of those 2.1 million east germans you talked of one sixth of the population of those 2.1 million 50 percent were under 25 years of age so that gets me to your major question how did the allies deal with this massive influx of people and was it a positive or a negative or both they seem to think uh, if you're dealing with this influx on the ground, then obviously it's a very stressful situation. You've got to deal with these uh, people. There's tens of thousands coming over every month uh, for a good few years with all the tension that that brings with the East and West political hierarchy, having various conferences, trying to sort out what was called the Berlin crisis about what would happen to the sectors in East and West Berlin, the Russians obviously wanting the Allies out, As you just said, the Russians obviously wanting uh, a demilitarized Germany. And if they can get a whole one, they definitely wanted a a demilitarized uh, Berlin. And then obviously, with all these uh, migrants coming through, it's just they were overrun. And it was a case of trying to process them as quickly as possible uh, by the Allies in their various camps that were based in the, the Allied sectors and then getting them out either by train or by air, depending on how important they were, because obviously it wasn't just civilians leaving. It was uh, it was never obviously announced at the time, but there were East German politicians leaving, uh, police and military officials wanted to leave, and they were the ones that had to be vetted properly. Uh, but overall, for West Germany, West, West Germany was uh, very happy to have this huge influx of uh, a guaranteed workforce that would help build up their economy as well. Because obviously from 48 onwards, you've got the Marshall Plan building up the Western uh, allies in Western Europe uh, with huge amounts of money so their infrastructure could be rebuilt, their economies could be restructured, uh, and then the Western economies could be integrated to work better, but work more fluently and become a a very big, one of the most successful, success stories, I should say, of of post-war economics. but. If this if this workforce of two point one million East Germans and fifty percent of them are under twenty five and the vast bulk of them are are professionals as well, it was the professional classes that were leaving uh, East Germany in their masses because they didn't see a future for themselves. So there's a ready-made workforce that's going to that obviously speaks the language, which is perfect, wants to live in West Germany which can obviously house them because Germany's a huge country there's only 61 million people 63 million uh uh west germans were there at the time they're perfect it's a perfect workforce so it for the for west germany it was a win-win situation it was obviously showing to the world that the east german socialist experiment wasn't working and for them it was they were getting a ready-made professional workforce that was very keen very eager to build a new life for themselves in West Germany, and obviously helped build the economy to when it was a world beater.
0: So moving from Germany itself to France's dealings with Germany, as a secondary power to the US and USSR, what role did France play in Berlin, particularly during periods of crisis?
1: Well, you can go right back to uh, the end of the war. I mean, France obviously wanted to play a big, significant role in the rebuilding, restructuring of Western Europe. And ultimately, their main goal, it was clear, was they didn't want a a militarised, strong, united Germany again right on their doorstep. Added to that, they wanted to hopefully... I mean, the Gaulle was still in charge until he he had to step down a, a few years later they still had themselves their own issues with politically what was going on the internal struggles that were going on between would it be a communist led government uh, because the communist party in france was hugely significant and influential or whether they could get back to where they'd been before the start of the first sorry before the start of the second world war uh so there was there was a big internal situation going on in the country and also the, <laughs> In the end, much as they they didn't want it to happen, they realised within a couple of years after the war that they had to play ball with the Americans. The Americans were there to stay. Uh, The Americans were going to get their way of what they wanted to happen with Germany. And it became obvious that Russia was not going to leave their East German sector. And to the French, it was pragmatism. On the one hand, publicly, they would would be arguing against uh, having a, a... a creation, for instance, in 1948 of uh, a West German republic. But obviously in private, when they're talking to the likes of Eisenhower, who had become president of the United States, they're thinking, well, it's better that than uh, we have a, a very strong, very militarized Soviet Union that could potentially move from East Germany into West Germany, and then we've got them right on our doorstep with all our internal struggles that we happening, having. So that had been going on all the way through the 50s. Added to that, uh, which leads to why the response the French had to the Berlin crisis was the way it was, was they obviously were going through a period like uh, Britain was of decolonization all the way through the 50s. So whether it was uh, Indochina or Algeria, the fiasco of Suez is 1958, 56, sorry, uh, the French realized that a they had to pull back from the areas of control that they had because they couldn't afford to uh, administer it; it wasn't it wasn't feasible, and also because they also wanted to make sure that they would still try and evolve to be a major military player, not only in Europe but in the world. I mean, they're, they're on the 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 Security Council in the UN; they were going to play obviously uh, some kind of part in the creation of NATO, even though they 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 they, they wouldn't be a big player later on. But also they wanted to try and develop their own nuclear weapon. They wanted to make sure that they had a strong, modernized armed forces. And, for instance, in Algeria, 1, 1.5 million, I think, Frenchmen served in uh, in Algeria throughout its time from 50, I think it was 54 through to 62 when eventually they pulled out, Uh That's a lot, and of those, most of them were conscripts. So to the French, they wanted to evolve their armed forces into a very uh, modernised, nimble, quick-moving, powerful force, and to have that, you need nuclear weapons. So again, that was one of the things they wanted. So to get to the question, for de Gaulle, who was in charge when the Berlin crisis was happening, he saw it primarily as a sideshow. He was one of the main Allied leaders that wasn't, intimidated or scared by Krush- Nikita Khrushchev, who by then was the premier first secretary of uh, of the Soviet Union, had taken over uh, from Stalin. So as much as Khrushchev was banging his shoe on the table famously about he wanted to have the uh, the Berlin crisis sorted and he wanted the Allies ultimately out of Berlin, uh, or they'd have to do something about it. And obviously, famously, at the, the Vienna Conference in the summer of 61, before the war went up, He'd first met Kennedy and really giving him what we call an ear bashing uh, quite uh, demonstratively and and aggressively, which really shook Kennedy up and really shook up the the policy the White House probably wanted to have with the the Soviets about what they would do about Berlin and and other places elsewhere. But always, always there was de Gaulle who was very, uh, not sang Freud about it, but he was just calm. He was just very... I do he he ultimately thought they will not go to a nuclear war level over berlin i just don't believe it will, will happen and if, and because i know that i'm prepared to match them blow for blow in all their threats if they think they're going to build up any kind of barrier in in the sectors i'm going to try and knock them down so he he was different to say kennedy who had a big fear that he didn't uh want a, a nuclear com, a confrontation with Khrushchev because obviously by that at that time they didn't they didn't know how much more, how much bigger the, the us nuclear arsenal was compared to the soviets the soviets were obviously uh expanding their uh, their de- expanding uh what they had when they obviously didn't have it so i would say that uh it's, it's obvious because when you read some of the, the the in the archives some of the uh the letters and correspondence I was reading from de Gaulle was in the first two weeks of the war going up from after the 13th of August, 61. He was all for knocking them down. But it was because uh, the other allies, uh, America and, and Britain, weren't prepared to do that that he said, well, we're not going to do it on our own. So he obviously told the, the guys, his men on the ground in Berlin, well, you're not going to do that, even though some of them wanted to. And this, again, goes back to some of the... Uh, the allies that on the ground in 61 that I interviewed, they all said the same thing that uh, the border guards, the East German border guards that they were talking to that were guarding the, the East German workers that were erecting the first barriers that were obviously at the time they were just barbed wire with cement posts. Obviously later it got much more sophisticated and deadlier. But these guys were saying, Look, guys, you know, Americans, French, British, we have no bullets in our guns. Uh, what are you waiting for? You can come over, you can knock this down easily. And those messages were passed up the chain of command, but still nothing was done. So it was a it was a chance missed. But like I said, the the French were very relaxed about what the uh, the East Germans had done because they they didn't believe anything else was going to happen.
0: So one of the most striking sections of your book and one of the most contentious areas of Berlin was around Bernard Strauss in the French section which was famous for its illicit escapes. Can you tell us about this place? Today's episode is brought to you by Factor. Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals make eating better every day easy. With over 35 different options a week to choose from, including keto, calorie smart, vegan, and veggie, and more, there's always something new and delicious to enjoy. With over 55 nutrition-packed add-ons, Factor is your go-to for all your dietary needs. Cheaper than takeout, healthy, and easy to prepare, Factor provides all the restaurant-quality meals, snacks, smoothies, whatever you need, they've got it. And with food ready to heat and eat, you won't have to deal with the regular kitchen mess. Factor is giving out a special deal for our show's listeners. Head to factormeals.com slash FrenchHistory50 and use the code FrenchHistory50 to get 50% off. That again is FrenchHistory50 at factormeals.com slash FrenchHistory50. Sign up now. Your stomach will thank you later.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, Bernhardstrasse is just a fascinating, fascinating place. And I I would say uh, to all your listeners, if they're ever over in Berlin, I would go to Bernhardstrasse first before you go to Checkpoint Charlie, in all seriousness, because it's still, obviously, it's it's in the eastern sector. And uh, as a point of interest, the first three or four times I was going over to Berlin, three or four years ago when I was doing my first interviews, I deliberately stayed in a hotel near Bernarstrasse just because I wanted to, to feel the atmosphere again. And you can you can still feel it. And you, you, when you walk from Bernastrasse in the Eastern sector through Mitter, which is the central district, the government district of Berlin, which is, it is still, which has got obviously famously Unter den Linden, the Reichstag, uh, the Brandenburg Gate, you walk through Mitter into the Western sector, you, you can still feel the difference. The houses are still shabbier around Uh It's a bit gloomier. If you go off the side roads, you can still feel uh, the atmosphere there. There's still some Cyrillic uh, graffiti that was written by Soviet soldiers who, who obviously took the city in 45. Uh, there's still pockmarked bullet holes in the walls. So it just gives you a really good uh, idea of, of what it must have still been like in those 28 years of the Berlin Wall going up. But... Uh, For those who don't know, Bernalstrasse existed early on as a commercial and military connection road between Berlin and uh, the the Brandenburg area of Berlin. Uh, And with the formation, as as all the cities were expanding before the Second World War, with Greater Berlin from 1920, uh, the district divisions were were changed. And this is what led to the problems when the Berlin Wall went up. So house numbers along Bernalstrasse from 1 to 50 on the south side of the street, would line the district of Mitter, uh, and that would later be the Soviet sector of Berlin, whereas the house numbers of 51 to 121 on the north side of the street literally just cross the road, as you would do in any of the places that your listeners live. And this would later be the part of the Soviet... Uh, sorry, uh, that would be the district of... Uh, which is called Wedding, which would later be the part of the French sector of Berlin, which, it, which they took control of after uh, forty seven. Uh, the road itself belonged entirely to wedding so it's entirely part of the french uh sector and obviously that that was the problem that that lay therein lay the 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 seeds of uh what we saw once the berlin Wall went up uh so once it was erected uh, along the street uh it became famous for escapes uh because obviously the uh if you're an East German living in this these uh these big housing blocks which were about six stories high uh, and hundreds if not thousands of East Germans were living in these these blocks of flats, the window you looked out of looked down, instantly down into the French allied sector. So like labs uh, lab rats in a trap, uh, if they've sealed off your sector with barbed wire uh, and armed guards and you now can't obviously walk straight through from east to west into the French sector, the best thing you can do is try to find these loopholes, which many, many people did in the first few months of uh, the Berlin wall going up. They would find hidden doorways that the East German authorities hadn't realized in their plans that they needed to seal. And then more famously, they would find that the best way to do is just open your window, look down into the French sector. And hopefully there's people there that would catch your fall. And, uh, that's what you did. And, and famously, uh, the first uh, casualty, uh, East German casualty of the Berlin Wall uh, was a week after the wall had gone up. And Ida Sickmann, uh, she died after jumping out of her third floor apartment uh, from Bernastrasse, number 48 Bernastrasse. And like many of her neighbours, they were either lowering themselves down on tied together blankets or... The West Berlin Fire Department were there with a the tarpaulin waiting to catch them. And that's how she tried to get out. And she just uh, mistimed her jump, missed the the, the the guys below that were trying to catch her and obviously hit the ground very hard and then died of her injury. So she's the very first uh, East Berliner to die of, her in, of, of trying to escape. And so the authorities knew that. So these Germans from the autumn of 61, they realized we've got to try and stop this. So they emptied all the buildings forcibly, bricked them all up. And then by 1963, as the the, the first generation of the proper Berlin Wall, as in made completely of cement blocks topped with barbed wire, and then with, uh, at the time, they had wooden uh, armed sentry posts, which would obviously develop into these much more sophisticated, big cement, purpose built. Uh, watchtowers that had 360 degree vision, they that they would be all knocked down. All the housing would be knocked down, and the authorities would then use that space to create what became famously the uh, the the death strip. But if you can't get over uh, uh, those, uh, you can't get through the death strip anymore. What became famous uh, because Bernauer Straße was so it was still easy. Because of the, uh, there was less of a gap to go from east to west at Bernauer than most other points of uh, the Berlin Wall through the city, is where East Germans started to tunnel, and that's where you have the famous. Uh, that, and they, they these tunnels are given numbers because it relates to how many East Germans escaped through that tunnel. So famously, in '62, uh, there was uh, Tunnel Twenty Nine which started in Strasse and went through to Holst, uh, uh And 29 Berliners of all different ages escaped into West Berlin before it was discovered. And that became a famous uh, American documentary uh, and is is a huge, you might not know it, but uh, if you go into the BBC podcasting system at the moment, you'll find uh, a dramatised version of Tunnel 29, which came out this year and has been a huge hit in Britain. Uh, and then there was Tunnel 57, which, again, started in Bernastrasse and ended up in uh, Strijleitzerstrasse. And that was in October 64. And then that's what the the authorities would then try and create an even bigger gap at Bernastrasse to make it practically impossible for people to uh, tunnel their way through as well. So it's got so many, uh, so, so much of the Berlin Wall and the the suffering of the East uh, Berlin people is wrapped up in Bernalstrasse, it's just fascinating and that's why obviously uh, in November '89, when the checkpoints were opening Bernalstrasse was one of the first places that the West uh, Berlin and Allied media went to to watch to see what was going to happen and that's where they were coming through as well What's lovely as well and again what I'd recommend your listeners go to is the reason why I think Bernalstrasse is a really important place to visit is it's one of the only places in Berlin you'll find that they've retained an original longish stretch of the original wall and where they've set up uh, – not, it's not huge, but it's, it gives you a really good idea of what it was like. They've, they've retained the death strip. They've retained uh, the watchtower, the, the famous dog runs, that kind of thing. And there's a museum right by there as well. And it's just terrific. Well, I, I have to commend the Berlin authorities; they are very, very good at interactive uh, museums that relate to the life of the Berlin Wall and what was it like living in West and East Berlin. And like the GDR Museum on Museum Island by Unter den Linden is is amazing. The museum by uh, Bernauerstrasse is is completely fascinating. You can spend a whole afternoon there, and it's full of uh, interviews with. East Berliners who tried to escape and did escape or failed to escape and were jailed, captures their memories, their anecdotes, and it's really valuable. So I I would highly recommend it to all your listeners.
0: So now let's talk about the man who was the head of the French section, who you had mentioned before, uh, Francois Kahn. He was an interesting character. Can you tell us about his background and the role he played in West Berlin? sure
1: so out of the three allied commanders obviously american british and uh french i really really enjoyed talking to francois khan i mean he's he's if you like boxing if you know boxing from yesteryear he's he's built like rocky marciano i mean he's just a tough 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 man uh uh comes from Brittany, which is a tough section of France. I mean, uh, from a cycling perspective, some of the, the best and toughest cyclists come from Brittany, and uh, Bernardino, for, for instance. And he, he came from a long line of uh, tough military men as well. So his, his father was a highly decorated hero from the Second World War uh, who distinguished himself with the French resistance and had helped dozens of Allied air crews that had been shot down by the Germans flying over France and he'd help them to, he'd recover them, he'd he'd uh, hide them, and then he'd help them to escape down the, the famous travel routes that took the Allied airmen through to, to Spain and then back, back to where they'd come from. And then eventually, uh, such was his reputation that once the Allies had landed in Normandy, he became uh, General Patton's uh, liaison officer in his staff and, and travelled with Patton all the way through France and into Germany, uh, and then it served uh, post-war in the French sector of Berlin as a police commissioner. So from the age of 11, Francois Kahn had grown up in the, the French sector of Berlin, so he knew it really well, he knew it intimately. Uh, and once he was 20, Francois uh, would, would go back to the city as, a once he'd been in the army, he would he would go often back there to see what was going on, and and just was a really I mean, it's hard to say he he basically it was evident it, it it came through the way he talked about it his eyes would gleam over he just had such a love for Berlin especially obviously had a love for the French sector, uh, so obviously he uh, Francois had, had had gone from uh, enlisting in the French army uh, by fifty four he was. Uh, Second Lieutenant in the Colonial Infantry, qualified a year later into the Colonial Paratroops, which, which was like the elite uh, units of the French Army, because obviously where they were serving in Indochina and Algeria, and he rose through the ranks uh, and served in Algeria, Cambodia, Lebanon, uh, commanded the Elite 11th Parachute Division. And so because he had all those touchstones of military service, by 87 it was felt he was ready to take command of what was seen as obviously a blue-ribboned uh, posting, and he would be in charge of the French sector in Berlin. And what, what I liked about him was he just had a, a very... Uh, he was resolute, and he had a very debonair way of talking about what his service meant to him and what his uh, role was in uh, in the French sector you know, 70-odd miles, 100 kilometres inside Soviet territory, uh, surrounded by probably, uh, what, <laughs> how many? It's about 3,000 Soviet tanks. You've got the Warsaw Pact around you. You've got over a million Soviet troops around you. Uh, and I used to say, that I said this to all the Allied commanders, what did it feel like that, to, to know that, obviously, you had no idea the Berlin Wall was going to come down. You had no idea at a... Uh, from an economic and strategic political situation that the, the the Soviet Union was teetering on the brink of collapse. East Germany was on the brink of collapse. When you were serving there, you had no idea until it actually happened. So how did it feel to be surrounded by that much firepower and threat from the Warsaw Pact? Uh, what would you have done if they decided the balloon had gone up and the Warsaw Pact had, had taken uh, West Berlin? Because obviously it wouldn't have taken them that long to, to to rumble through with all their firepower. And he was very much like the uh, – all three commanders were the same kind of opinion. It was uh, – they would put up a hell of a fight. Uh, it was obviously going to be one-way traffic. But uh, I loved the way Francois uh, described it. I said, well, what, what would have been uh, the result of uh, you putting up a fight? And he, he kind of shrugged his shoulders and said – Glorious Annihilation. Uh, I, I just thought the sang to say something like that was just, uh, and it's a classic paratrooper to say that. The, 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 the British commandant at the time, uh, Robert Corbett, uh, he was also from the, the parachute division. And interestingly, they had, uh, they, they remain firm friends today. They're in their 80s. Uh, both have ill health issues to deal with but they're still very much in contact. Uh, they're almost like blood brothers, but they'd actually met in the seventies. Uh, and I think that bred in them later on, once they met a real bond that, that helped with the situation, because basically, uh, general Robert Corbett had served in one of the, uh, parachute divisions. Uh, he was attached to them for a year and a half, uh, to obviously learn the skills, uh, and established relations between the British Parachute Division and the, the French. And to cut a long story short, he'd had a major accident in on a uh, an exercise where him and his unit were dropped uh, prematurely at night over a location. And instead of landing where they should have landed, they landed in a quarry, a stone quarry. Uh, quite a few of his unit were seriously injured, as was he, and so General Corbett, I think, broke one of his legs and broke or fractured uh, his hip bone, couldn't walk, managed to spend hours crawling in agony. Uh, I think it was three kilometres to get help. And so he recovered, but they they later had a court of inquiry, and who was leading that court of inquiry would be General Francois Kahn. And the both of them uh, didn't realise this until they were having dinner with each other at at their first common dance meeting in 1989, because Robert Corbett joined two years after Francois Kahn had been there. And they realized that uh, they had this joint connection and that served them well. But Francois Kahn is just, he's a product obviously of his upbringing, uh, his family's military background and his service. He was, and that's why he was placed where he was. It was to make sure that if the time came and the balloon went up, uh, France had someone there in charge that uh, would obviously do his duty, not just for his country, but for the men that served under him at the time. And talking to his uh, aide-de-camp, his ADC, and several other officers that served with him, they were all the same. I mean, their their attitude and their, their determination that they would go down fighting, uh, and like I said, that was reflected in the American and the British sectors was was inspiring actually it's just, it was just it's like you I came away from that thinking they just don't make men like this anymore
0: yeah he sounds like he deserves a book just for himself before we move on do you want to explain the phrase when the
1: balloon went up
0: well yeah the, the balloon go, uh, goes up
1: is uh, it became uh, a saying that that related to uh nuclear the nuclear Holocaust that might resolve or sorry might come about because all roads led to Berlin and it was always felt definitely where where I was growing up and and the history lessons I was being taught and the programs we'd watch on TV that if a major military confrontation came uh, between East and West it would always start with Berlin and it would be the Warsaw Pact would uh, take Berlin first before they obviously rumbled on through to Western Europe and that would lead to obviously nuclear confrontation so berlin was all the western sectors in berlin was always seen as as a weather vane and so if the balloon goes up that's a, a, almost like a weather balloon but actually the saying comes from the first world war and again it 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 evolves to where this was before uh, the allies had developed uh, planes that were that could fly high enough and would be equipped with photography to take pictures of the German trench lines that they were facing. So before that, it was uh, they used balloons. And that that had gone back all the way through to the American Civil War in the 1860s. So when the balloon went up was always the the saying that that would lead to trouble. So uh, that's where it came from. But it was very much a saying that we had, as I was growing up as a teenager in the late 70s and the early 80s, the balloon would go up if West Berlin fell because you knew that the Warsaw Pact was coming.
0: All right. Thank you for explaining that Britishism as an American. I actually had never heard that before. So were there any other interviews with French people that stuck out to you?
1: Well, Marguerite Hosseini's was was amazing because like I said, it's, uh, and again, I, I almost gave her a whole chapter because I needed to find people that not only served there for a specific period of time, because obviously most Allied soldiers would be Routinely switched in and out, so they, you know you would serve a couple of years there, then you would go. Uh, and even though whole units would proudly say, "Well, we served there," like the the American uh, U.S. military police, or even the French gendarmerie, they will say, "Well, we were there the whole time. We were there from the end of the war to when the the Allies took control of the of Berlin itself, to when we left in 1994," which is true. But obviously, within that, thousands and thousands and thousands of personnel were switched in and out. To serve their time. So I needed to find someone that could obviously give me a reflection, not just from a military perspective, but from a civilian perspective, and obviously from a, from all different ages. And so Marguerite, because she lived in the, the French sector and her father was a French diplomat, it gave her a lot of access with her father to get into the uh the soviet zone that would become obviously east berlin so from her i've i've got some amazing anecdotes in the book that talk about the 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 physical state of east berlin by the time she got there in 53 54 uh because her father had moved there much earlier but obviously he didn't want his family there until it was he'd established himself he'd got them proper quarters to live in the french school was set up that kind of thing so she moved there with her family, and she saw everything. And her father had, had married; uh, his wife was German, and her uh, relatives were some of her relatives anyway were based in the hinterland of East Berlin. So Marguerite uh, managed to not only see the state of the Soviet sector and the destruction that was still there, all the way through to the end of uh, the Cold War. Really, I mean, obviously they re- they rebuilt the the main sections that interna- international and military allied military personnel would be allowed to travel through because that was the agreement of free travel for the allies were allowed access and the soviets were allowed access through to the allied sectors as well so that those main sectors were rebuilt by the east germans and the soviets but there were whole areas districts of uh Of East Berlin that were still pretty much as you found them if you were a Soviet soldier coming in through there in 1945. I mean, it's forgotten that it's something like what is it? It's it's over 80 percent of German housing totally was destroyed by 1949 due to Allied bombing and the the Russian capture of the city. So obviously, the Allies with the Marshall Plan aid had rebuilt all the Western sectors to where they were amazing places to live and. And all the Allied soldiers I talked to said it was the best posting of their lives because the city was just an incredibly exciting place to live in. But it wasn't like that in East Berlin. And so through Marguerite's eyes, I captured that ostensibly her travels going through Bernalstraße and the crossing point there and then through Checkpoint Charlie with her father. and And she saw everything. And then obviously, as time went by and the Berlin Wall was built, by then she was a teenager and she was witnessing everything. And, and I capture this incredible moving story of how uh, the panic and fear and paranoia her father had uh, at the time of the wall going up, because obviously the French authorities were were caught napping, just as the, the British and the French were. When the barriers went up, Marguerite's younger daughter, sorry, younger sister, was actually with her relatives in East, in East Berlin. Uh, having a weekend's holiday, as they did all the time, because they could go through and there was no problem. But obviously, when the the barriers go up, they're thinking, "Well, what's going on? Is is this going to lead to conflict? Uh, will there be no more at all uh, access to East Berlin? How do we get our? How do we get uh, my sister, my father, you know, my father's daughter back?" So I capture that story of how the family were rushing hither and thither, trying to find news, along with tens of thousands of other West Berlins, how they were going to get their loved ones back. So I captured that. And then Marguerite was a uh, witness to various shootings. Uh, I think I'd said at the beginning, she was witness to uh, JFK arriving uh, to give uh, his famous uh, speeches in West Berlin and give the city and the, and the citizens there a real shot in the arm to realise that they weren't forgotten. So it, it was great because I had many American and many British uh, interviews, but I, I I was really pleased to get uh, Marguerite and Francoise because their stories are key. They're really key and they, they'll go down as uh, through history if people want to know what it was like at those certain hotspots in uh, East and West Berlin during the Cold War. They are from a French perspective, so I was very, very happy uh, to capture those for the book.
0: So the Berlin Wall didn't fall for any one reason, as you note. On the one hand, the USSR faced an incredible amount of global geopolitical pressure. On the other hand, non-elite Germans on both sides of the wall fought for its removal. What do you think was the most influential factor in the fall of the Berlin Wall?
1: The Berlin Wall wouldn't have fallen and the GDR would still have been in place if the Russians, the Soviet leadership under Gorbachev by this time, had wanted it to be there. It was one of many dominoes over a, a, a seven, eight-year period through the 80s that led to 1989 and the fall of the war, the opening of the wall, and then obviously ultimately the fall of the GDR and the reunification of Germany. Russia was basically struggling to keep intact its eastern empire that faced west, it acted that Stalin had always wanted as a buffer zone, which included East Germany. And even though it had friendly regimes in place from Poland all the way through to down to Albania, Yugoslavia, Poland, I'm sorry, I said Poland, uh, East Germany, Czechoslovakia, they were still having the same problems. Economically, uh, Russia was potentially on the verge of collapse, and that was mirrored in lots of the other uh, Soviet satellite states. And one by one, they realized that they could either keep in check their populations who were all clamoring for democratic change and freedom of travel and a better life, which involved obviously spending power and things to spend your money on. These were all things that everyone wanted. And East Germany was no different. And added to that, you've got Gorbachev coming into power and coming up with perestroika and glasnost, his idea of he's got to change the Soviet system internally to have a fairer economic system that will help his own citizens lead better lives uh, and have more spending power, have more money to earn. And then obviously he had to sort out the the brinkmanship the Soviet Union was having with the allies, particularly America now, Ronald Reagan had been in charge, where they were having another nuclear arms race, which The Soviets were never going to win. They didn't have the money and they didn't have uh, the wherewithal to create the kind of uh, weapons that the the Americans could really mass produce. So added to that was the fact that East Germany, again, was was pretty much bankrupt. So that was obviously hidden from the vast bulk of the population. But by the time it came to 1989 and East Germany was celebrating its 40th anniversary and, and its special guest was Gorbachev, he was only there for one reason, and that was to basically tell uh, Eric Honecker, who was obviously the party leader, uh, dictator, you could say, that uh, time's up and you need to do what I'm doing and start uh, releasing the uh, the constrictions you're placing on your population who are clamouring to, to, uh, to have freedom of travel uh, and uh, a different experience of life in terms of what what jobs are were allowed, uh, easing of, of state security restrictions, because obviously East Germany enjoyed one of the highest state security uh, oppressive regimes they had in the, in the form of the Stasi. Uh, one in four of the population was an informant. So all this was a, a ticking time bomb. So by the time of 1989, it was going to happen, I think. And once uh, Gorbachev had signaled that the... Uh, to the younger generation of uh, in the East German government, so Egon Krenzer and uh, his ilk, that if Honecker left, the Russians wouldn't mind. And obviously, if then, should the wall eventually come down the, and the East Germans are going back and forward into West Germany, the, the Russians would be kept in barracks and nothing would be done about it. And playing in the back of many, many of the, the, the leaders of the East, East European blocks by 1989, autumn 1989, they'd seen what had happened in China, in Tiananmen Square in the summer of 89, which was quite similar in that a younger generation was wanting massive change. And their leadership was prepared to send the tanks on the street and kill as many people as possible who were going to oppose them. A lot of leaders, and, and crucially, the East German leadership did not want that to happen. And so once you've got all that in the pot, uh, and obviously the East German civilians didn't know this. The allies in the Berlin sectors didn't know this. But that explains a lot why the pressure cooker of would uh, would the East Germans be given freedom of travel, which was the key thing. And that led to the infamous uh, news conference uh, the night before, uh, on November 9th, where uh, Gunther Schabowski, the, press, the East German press secretary, gave news that uh, travel restrictions would be lifted. And when questioned further, because he hadn't been briefed properly, he said, well, they come into effect immediately. And that just set the ball rolling. But the ball had been rolling for months, if not years before that. It was going to come. The East Germans and the Soviets just chose not to make a fight of it and chose not to make it a bloody spectacle.
0: So on that note, France had a very complex relationship with Germany and Berlin. On the one hand, they worked as Germany's defenders against communist takeover. Yet when the Berlin Wall actually did come down and the two Germanys looked poised to reunify, French President Francois Mitterrand and much of France weren't really excited for it. How do you view France's post-World War II relation with Germany and its people?
1: Well, it was a, there was a, a public and a private, uh, with a massive dose of pragmatism from a political point of view. Because I, I, I talked earlier about the fact that uh, the modernization that, that France needed to do in terms of her armed forces, and the fact that she had to uh, the, the policy of decolonization all the way through the fifties. But from the end of the war, excuse me, uh, obviously they, they they didn't want a powerful Germany on their doorstep again. Uh, and, but allied to that, they knew they couldn't push against the, the Americans who were very keen, especially by 1948 when it became blindingly obvious the Russians weren't going to give up their East German uh, sector and all the, the Eastern uh, states were falling to uh, de facto uh, communist regimes that were just taking over in bogus election results. They realised that they they had to create the, uh, the Federal Republic of Germany. So... France had to go along with that, even though from a public perspective, they would, would have preferred that uh, they had a completely demilitarized Germany that they could, uh, they could oversee uh, with their other European allies and, and obviously try and play down the American angle. They knew that America called the shots. In. Once America decided by forty eight that they were staying for a very long time in Europe to counter any Soviet aggression, the French would have to go along with it, and so obviously, to the public, they would they would say one thing, but in private, in in obviously high powered political uh, conferences and secret meetings, the French knew that they uh, they would they would have to go along with what the uh, the Americans and the Allies wanted. So th- that would happen. But then, I was going to say once uh, Algeria had. Uh, the, the, the issue of Algeria had been sorted by '62, and obviously there was there was ramifications with uh, the, the, the the terrorist organisations uh, that were affiliated to the, the the French units that served in Algeria were trying to obviously assassinate De Gaulle. But once that period had ended, there was, and obviously the the European uh, Union was set in place. The main drivers of the European Union from the late 60s, all the way through to today, was uh, was West Germany, which obviously became a unified Germany, and France. Hence, we've got the problems where I'm living about, obviously, Britain's leaving Brexit, because we've always been, as far as I'm concerned, and I, I'm a big Europhile, I would love us to stay, but there's always been a, a case of us on the outside looking into some respect with our the way our media portrays it. But I was gonna say it's it's very famous from 89 once the wall came down, and it was obvious that the the Warsaw Pact was going to get broken up and there was gonna be democratic elections within Germany. I think uh both uh Mitterrand and Thatcher were very, very wary, very wary, because of their past, of their from World War II and what they'd suffered, of a unified Germany. They were afraid of the power economically and potentially military. And they were equally more shocked at the speed with which uh, Helmut Kohl, who was then the Chancellor of West Germany, wanted to bring uh, East Germany into the the bosom of West Germany to create a unified state. And he did that within, what, 18 months, where you had then elections, and obviously the the East German uh, Socialist Party was defeated in the elections, and then they instantly had almost like a plebiscite of does East Germany want to, to join uh, for reunification? And you've got the famous two plus four agreement, which I talk about in my book, which signalled, obviously, the, the Allied powers agreeing with the Soviet Union to the reunification of Germany. And it all happened bloodlessly. It happened with West Germany, Helmut Kohl, taking a, a huge economic risk of matching the uh, the West German mark with the East German mark, which obviously was... You could you could buy so much more with a West German mark in East Germany, but he matched uh, mark for mark just so that there wouldn't be an, an economic disaster in East Germany, and and the East German citizens would have some spending power at last, and they they would obviously not be at too much of a disadvantage to the West German citizens. So that all went on, and then, and then gradually, I mean, I I've seen it as a student, a degree student from nineteen ninety all the way through to today. It's it's almost uh, they have their ups and downs, but it's become very clear uh, from uh, Jacques Chirac all the way through to where we are today that Germany and France go hand in hand economically and politically uh, when it comes to the future of Western Europe. And maybe that's where the, the issues have come, where sections of the right wing media in, in Britain have taken huge umbrage at that and figure out that we haven't got a the same say at the European table. but. They're they're almost like conjoined twins i mean and i've i've grown up with that uh and i'm very much a francophile and very much a uh uh passionate supporter of a a unified germany uh where it takes us going forwards uh is a is an issue because obviously with britain leaving uh the eu that will have a massive economic uh effect definitely for the next 3 or 4 if not 5 years on the, uh, the, the output of uh, the EU. And then obviously what's going on with COVID-19 is having a, a dramatic effect. My fear, and, uh, and I see it a lot with the people I talk to, not just in Britain, but my friends in Germany, is with Angela Merkel, who's been such an amazing figure, a unifying figure, not just in her own country, but in Europe and with France, is once she steps down, who will replace her? and will the the balance of power remain the same what will macron do uh, will he push for a bigger say for france uh, in the eu and then the, the danger as there always is a danger of uh, with germany in the reunification again lots of uh, old generation east germans that i talk to have said well you know the 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 extremist elements Right and left in East Germany haven't gone away. They're going to rise again, and you've seen it to a degree with uh, as we see it in the UK, where certain parties, if they if they if they hold to the traditions of trying to halt immigration and one nation politics, they'll get some of the vote. It started in in Germany and in certain sections and regions of East Germany, they get a bigger share of the vote, but it hasn't taken off to any big degree, and I would argue it's because there's a unifying figure like Angela Merkel in charge. So I would say the jury's out. Once Angela Merkel leaves power, it will be interesting, very interesting, to see what happens to Germany itself, but obviously the relationship between France and Germany.
0: Yeah, I think you've touched on so many things, and I think it's interesting to reflect on where Germany and Europe is headed, especially because this October 3rd, 2020 will be the 30th anniversary of German reunification. So on that note, I think we've covered pretty much everything that I set out to cover. Do you have any final thoughts before we head out?
1: Uh, just that, yeah, I mean, it's. it's uh, I would recommend... Uh, for your listeners, 22nd of June marks the 30th anniversary of Checkpoint Charlie closing. And I would really recommend to them uh have a look on YouTube at the closing ceremony because it's it's fascinating just for the uh the, the 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 political uh players that were at that ceremony. So an insignificant, almost like a mobile classroom getting lifted away by a crane shouldn't really grab the world's attention, but everyone was there. It was an absolute packed event. And not only were the Allied commandants there, like Francois Kahn spoke at the event, uh, but all the major political players were there. And that says something for how important uh, not only Checkpoint Charlie played in the history of the Cold War in Berlin, but also to how important it was for the Allies to quickly reunify the country and for France to play a really key part in that as well.
0: Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. The book is Checkpoint Charlie, The Cold War, The Berlin Wall, and The Most Dangerous Place on Earth. Uh, This has been enlightening.
1: Thank you. It's great to be on board.
0: As always, donations keep the podcast going. So if you would like to make a one-time donation or become a patron, please consider doing so. Thank you very much for your continued support. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That
1: crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it.